0: You're listening to Randall Wallace presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American History podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com.
1: Well, no, I think I I, I think I'm through. I, I would like to cite a case where, in fact, the prosecutors cheated, didn't do Brady, and it was thrown out. And that's the next document. That's the next one. That's uh, uh, document number. Uh, Twelve. This is an intriguing case. This is Nixon's tax lawyer, and he successfully removed the case to California. It's being heard in Los Angeles, and the, the it's before a Democrat judge. And and what's happened is they've discovered in the course of the trial that the prosecutors knew somebody had changed their mind and didn't disclose it. And it's the third paragraph right down there at the bottom uh, of the opinion where he says, you know, this is this is hugely important. This is the judge. Thus, this is no an ordinary criminal matter. We're talking about the president. The public interest in resolution of the issues raised by the government's indictment is manifest. But the public has a greater interest in the proper administration of our system of criminal justice. The defendant, Frank DeMarco, has moved to dismiss charges against him on the ground of prosecutorial misconduct. And that motion must be granted. Now, I only bring this up to show that they, they do. They toss cases on, on the basis of lack of disclosure of Brady material. They tossed the case against these very uh particular special prosecutors. And here it is. And I would add, because I'm so biased there were very few cases tried outside the district of columbia and every single one of them resulted in an acquittal and of course there was a massive number of cases tried within the district and all but two resulted in conviction not that there's a pattern there <laughs> but it's it's really surprising uh you know the district is a tough place for uh uh for republicans <laughs> So if if I can stop there, I can now go to the last item, if I may. We still have a half hour. Uh, The the FedSoc people should put up that code again at this point. If they have access to that code, this is a very good spot.
2: And they should also tell us uh, when we have to break to uh, uh, hear questions.
1: Yes. Okay. So the CLE code uh, for the second half is not. Notice it is different from the earlier code, and you have to do this correctly. Don't mess this up. I'm going to read it a second time to get CLE credit. Now, just to warn those lawyers, we have to have three full hours of instruction. If we round it off toward the end, you'll only qualify for two hours in some states. So we've been watching the clock. We know when we started, which was a touch afternoon. We know we took a 10 minute break. So we're going to go that length past three o'clock in order to qualify for that third hour of CLE. And in case you don't think this whole thing is so entertaining, you'd do it for free. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the FedSoc people will tell us what that number is. But right now, I'm going to go to the fourth area uh, of of uh, view, which is the seemingly partisan choice of defendants, and I want uh, document number nine to be posted. Here's document number nine. See, we're all prepared to do this. It's marked up at the top. Final decisions. Now, this is part of the fascinating stuff about these guys. They they wrote down everything. This is where the the Watergate task force comes in and says, Here's who we think we ought to indict in the comprehensive cover up indictment. Here's who's already pled, cooperate, co conspirators, all that kind of stuff. And, and the task force makes recommendations. This is run by Ben Venisti at this point. He's acting. It's actually the head is James Neal, but the acting head is Ben Venisti. And then the senior staff. Jaworski, his deputy, Phil Lacavara, James Vornberg, and a couple of others, they debate whether to follow the recommendation because there's no review within the Department of Justice. If there was within the Justice Department, there would have been an outside review. This is an internal review. We're going to contrast paragraph two, and we're going to contract that with paragraph five. Now, paragraph two is Chuck Colson. Chuck is probably the most prominent Nixon defender. He's the one who's so famous for saying, I'd run over my grandmother if it would help reelect President Nixon. So the people who don't like Nixon don't like Chuck. But he wasn't that involved in the cover-up itself. We don't like him. He's very prominent. But he's not an integral part. So it's it's right here typed on this version prepared by Peter Krendler, on the basis of Ben Vanisti's assessment of chances of conviction of Colson on the evidence. Leon Jaworski has decided he should be included. White House has decided not to make available the tapes that Colson's lawyer uh, 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 David Shapiro wanted us to hear. Ben Vaniste said the evidence shows Colson is a member of the conspiracy, and there's a 50-50 chance of conviction. Ruth, whose deputy, dissents from this recommendation. And what's causing the upset is the rules for the U.S. attorneys say, look, we know you can show probable cause. That's not the test in indicting somebody. You have to have a high degree of confidence that a jury, knowing what you know, will bring in a conviction. We don't just try people for the fun of it. And here the task force, maybe by mistake, maybe it just slipped out. They say, well, you know, he's not like the others. The chances of conviction are only 50-50. And Jaworski says, I'll go anyway. Now, we're showing you this one, but there are handwritten notes from these segments that I've reviewed, and they're pretty consistent. Jaworski says, I'm familiar with the evidence. I've met with Colson, I've met with Shapiro. It's a weak case, but I'm willing to sign the indictment because, and then one set of notes says, he's going to plead anyway, so we don't have to prove the case. And the other set of notes from James Varenberg has has Jaworski saying, because I'd really like to nail him. So that's the way they handled Chuck Colson. Now compare that with paragraph five down here with the way they handled Bill Bittman. That's not a name you know, but Bill Bittman was Howard Hunt's lawyer. And he was coordinating the defense amongst the Cubans and Howard Hunt, and he was accepting the money being paid on the side and redistributing it to the lawyers for the other defendants. And he knew that Colson was threatening to revise his memory if his legal bills weren't paid, but he didn't tell the prosecutors that. So Bittman is dirty as he can be. But it's a different case with Bitman because he's a Democrat, he's a Democrat hero, and he doesn't fit the narrative. He's not with the Nixon White House. He's not one of the crooks showing up for work every day. He's one of the lawyers, and his guilt fouls up the narrative. So what this goes on to say is to point out how Jaworski refuses to, I mean, this is the unanimous vote of the task force to indict Bittman. They, they think Bitman's dirty as he can be, but he refuses. And if you scroll down a little bit on this same, uh, uh, I've highlighted in yellow, Frampton wants to indict him. He said the point's not uh, uh, Bittman's motive that changed to self interest, it's Bittman's facilitation of blackmail by Hunt was criminal. And then Frampton said Bittman's conduct on behalf of his client went way beyond legal limits and thus such a motive was no excuse. And Volner down near the bottom says his conduct wasn't just a single bad judgment uh, uh, defending his client. He knew exactly what the cops were of what he did. And Jaworski, you got to read between the lines here, he attacks them. He says he was just defending his client and scroll down to the very bottom. Jill Volner is the only female on the task force, and she is is arguing for indicting Bittman. And Jaworski tells Volner, "If you ever wanted to be a criminal defense lawyer, you'd starve if you took the position you're advocating here this morning. I mean, you 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 know you can't say that stuff anymore today. So we have this contrast: Bittman, a Democrat walks free, Colson, a Republican on weak evidence, gets nominated. Now, I'll take one more minute because we have just a little bit of time. Why was Bittman a Democrat hero? And this is key. One, he won the first case in the conviction against Jimmy Hoffa, and that was Robert Kennedy's big effort to get Hoffa squad, and Bittman prevailed. But as importantly, this is my view, Bobby Kennedy decided to try to bump Lyndon Johnson off the ticket in 1964. Didn't like him. Didn't like this cornpone Texan. So the way he was going to do it was go after uh, Bobby Baker, the secretary to the Senate when Lyndon Johnson was a uh, 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 majority leader. And Baker was corrupt as he could be, bribery and everything else. So they indicted Bobby Baker, but then Jack Kennedy got assassinated and Lyndon Johnson became president. And Bobby Kennedy was no longer attorney general. And there wasn't this personal overwhelming need to replace Johnson because he's already president. Bill Bittman conducted the Bobby Baker prosecution without Lyndon Johnson's name ever coming up. Leon Jaworski is a protege of Lyndon Johnson. It's not in the memos. It's in Shepard's bias, but there was no way in the world he was going to name Bittman when Bittman had saved Lyndon Johnson. Judge Diamond?
2: Well, why don't we, uh, forgetting for a minute the, the partisan political labels, why don't we talk about prosecutor's decision to charge someone and not to charge someone. And um, Jeff has provided me very kindly with a speech made by uh, Justice Jackson, Robert Jackson, uh, when he was Attorney General of the United States. This is in the summer of 1940. Uh, He had been Solicitor General and would become a member of the Supreme Court, but he was Attorney General and he was making a speech to United States attorneys from across the nation who had gathered in Washington. And it's a long speech, and I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs. Uh, What every prosecutor is practically required to do is to select the cases for prosecution and to select those in which the offense is the most flagrant and the public harm the greatest and the proof the most certain. If the prosecutor is obliged to choose his cases, it follows he can choose his defendants. Therein is the most dangerous power of the prosecutor that he will pick people that he thinks he should get rather than pick cases that need to be prosecuted. Uh, uh, Professor, did Leon Jaworski pick the cases or pick the people he thought should be prosecuted? based on this particular memo?
3: I wanna start out by saying, I loved that speech that he gave to the department. I, I refer to it often. He really did identify the role of a prosecutor. And um, when you see this particular memo, um, it, it's it's hard to to conclude anything other than there's a total inconsistency here. The idea of charging Colson when Henry Ruth, who was one of the lead, lead, um, basically said no, that he didn't think he should be charged. And the best you could say is there was a 50 50 chance of a conviction. And not charging Bittman when the apparently overwhelming judgment was that he was certainly um, someone they could convict demonstrates that. That um, I think what Jeff said, that Colson was closely identified with Nixon. He was hated. He got charged. I didn't know the history of Bittman, but I all I can, can judge from this memo is Leon Jaworski had his mind made up, period. The end, Bittman was not going to be charged. And, and Jeff, I wanted to ask you one thing. If Bittman had been charged, what do you think they would have charged him with?
1: Obstruction of justice.
2: Conspiracy.
1: Uh, They might even have said he was in on the conspiracy to obstruct justice. But he had, uh, uh, Colson wrote, uh, uh, I'm sorry, um, um, Hunt, because he was Hunt's lawyer. Right. Uh, Hunt wrote a a, a memo to Bittman and said, if these guys don't pay up, I'm going to revise my memory. And Bittman didn't pass that along uh, uh, to the prosecutors after the thing came came fell, fell apart. It was his law firm that found it in the files and gave it to the special prosecutors, Hogan and Hardson, and said, you should know this memo exists. Now, what happened instead was Hunt met personally with uh, 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 a, a lawyer for the re-election committee and said, pay up, or I or I change my mind, uh, and we're going to get to that much later if, if we do, but that they had written proof of Bittman's uh, uh, criminality, it would have been a very strong case, but again, it fouled up the narrative. Because- well, hold on a
2: minute, Jeff, just, just for one second. We have a panel member who has a, 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 at least a bit of an official history with Colson. Uh, Judge Silbermann. <laughs> Judge Silberman, uh, what do you think of, as reflected in this memo, the decision to charge Colson?
4: Well, uh, I admit I fought with Colson for two almost two and a half
1: years. Um I despised him at Labor. You were uh, a as, solicitor and then under secretary of labor.
4: As uh, under secretary of labor, uh, I won't go through all the things he tried to do. He tried to fix cases in the Labor Department. I instructed people not to talk to anybody in the Labor Department, not to talk to Colson without my permission, uh, which drove him nuts. <laughs> uh, he tried to get me fired at one point. Um so if I had been if I had, had any role in the case, I would have accused myself vis-à-vis Colson. But I agree with looking back on it now, I agree entirely with Jeff. It looks as if Jaworski was uh, biased. Colson was so, so desperately unpopular. Uh, I think he was target number one. And indeed, I will tell you this story. When he tried to fix cases and I objected violently, I came to John Ehrlichman to complain about Colson trying to fix cases in the Labor Department or the NLRB. And uh, Ehrlichman said the most interesting thing to me. He said, Larry, there's not a thing I can do about Colson. He is the second most powerful man in the country.
1: Well, Just just to finish that story, Paul, if, if I could. I was in a meeting, the only meeting I was ever in in Colson's office. His office was across the hall from mine. And Nixon asked to see him. And he was in his hideaway office in the old EOV. And, and so Colson stepped around briefly to go see Nixon. And Joan Hall, who was Colson's secretary, said, Come to the window. I want to show you something. She said, I promise you within one minute, Bob Haldeman will come across the street to Nixon's office. And sure enough, Haldeman comes running out of the West Wing up the stairs to Nixon's office. And she said they've told the receptionist outside his hideaway office that she'll get fired if Colson gets in with the president and she doesn't alert Haldeman or Ehrlichman. They (laughs) think he's so dangerous when he gets alone with the president and he plays to the president's dark side that they've got to be there to stop Nixon from making a mistake. And one of the things they were most proud of, and Erlichman, beginning the second term, they got Colson out of the White House. Nixon wasn't going to run again. We don't need this guy. Get him out of here. Uh, uh, but the, as as Larry said, uh, when when the uh, when when the chapel fell, Colson was among the most hated people in America. He personified the dark side of Dick Nixon. Everybody knew him.
2: Well,
1: well, let me let me.
4: You, you, about it. That, and thinking about it, he reminds me of the former mayor of New York. <laughs> um, uh, Giuliani.
1: Yeah. Nice target. Uh,
2: professor Salzberg. Um, you've been practicing for a while, a little longer than I have. Can you really say that the decision that uh, uh, whoever the the chief prosecutor is in a particular office makes to charge people, not in a discretionary decision whether or not to charge, not the police bring someone in because they caught him robbing a bank, but uh, an investigation precedes the decision to charge, that these decisions are always uh, 99 and 44, 100% pure?
4: No such thing.
3: I agree with Judge Silverman. It's you hope. In my experience, if you if you appoint good people who are trying to do the right thing, they will do the right thing most of the time. But we all have our biases—some um, implicit, some explicit—and they're then you can't help but be affected by 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 your biases, and they do sometimes result in people. Walking, who should be prosecuted, and people being prosecuted, who in if another prosecutor were leading the office would not be. It's just the way of the world, and um, we're human, and
2: we'll never be, you know, we'll never be perfect. And again, this is a this is a we're we're watching the sausage being made. I asked the question, uh, Jeff: Is it time for us to take questions?
1: Well, I want to do one thing before we do, uh, uh, because of course we've dropped the second half of our program. But I want to I want to read a teaser because I think people will be just as intrigued with the second half. So if we could put up uh, document fourteen, uh, uh, this is fun. And 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 uh, uh, I, <clears throat> let me explain the context. Hank Ruth, the deputy, becomes very concerned. The House Judiciary Committee is going to get rolled, and, and Nixon's going to walk free. So he says we have to help them. And Jaworski says, "That's just not our job. Our job is to prosecute criminal cases. That's their job. And and Jaworski, uh, uh, Ruth writes back and says, but they're floundering. We have to help them. And this is what Jaworski writes back. Now, it's a draft. It's dated January 21st. But I just think this is fascinating stuff. And I'm going to read it to you. I believe the written exchange between us on dealing of Nixon, in light of the evidence, because they afforded opportunities for thorough consideration of questions and answers, but I'm beginning to wonder whether they're not wasted effort. Some of the comments in your last memo almost preclude further discussion. I've deferred replying because of the innuendos, don't do justice to calm and reasoning judgments. Scroll down, just touch more. I said before, and I emphasize again, the mere conclusion the president is not indictable or should not be named as an unindicted co-conspirator furnishes no basis for us pursuing still another course beset with restraints that should not be violated. I mean this. If it is not sound in law or policy to indict the president, if it's not sound in law or policy to name him as an unindicted co-conspirator. It cannot become so simply because the efforts of the House to impeach are frustrated. Differently stated, if the House bogs down an impeachment because of a lack of evidence that cannot properly and legally be released to it, or because of its own failures, the unindictable president does not Perforce, these shortcomings become indictable. I mean, at this point, this is January 21st, 1974, Jaworski is disinclined to help the House, disinclined to name Nixon an unindicted co-conspirator. He gets rolled on both. Now, scroll down just a little bit more.
4: Jeff, we're running out we of want time. To go.
1: We want to go to the crossed out. Come second. on,
4: Jeff. Jeff, I don't, I don't think. At this point, you're. I think we're over the hill.
1: All right. Too much.
2: Let's. I think we should go to questions.
1: All right. All right. I received. Uh, uh, Jack or Nathan, you're going to read questions to us.
5: Absolutely. Happy to go to audience Q and A now. I'll remind our audience that you can use the Q and A box at the bottom right of your Zoom window. I'm Jack Durbin with the Federal Society's practice groups. And we have a few great questions queued up. And as we wait to some more filter in, uh, we can get to the few that we do have. From early on in the panel, somebody was wondering, uh, specifically to you, Jeff, to be interested in your perspective on President Nixon's remarks and his interview with David Frost and whether the movie dramatization of that seems generally fair and unbiased.
1: Well, the public's knowledge of Watergate, visual knowledge of Watergate, stems from three things the Irvin committee hearings, which were pretty much one-sided, the movie, All the President's Men, which is pretty much one-sided, and the movie version of the Frost-Nixon interviews. This is one of those situations where you could buy the DVD of the actual interviews, and you could read what he said. Or you could go to the movies And you could watch Peter Morgan's interpretation, the entertainment interpretation of those interviews. And what's really funny, they asked Frank Langella, who played Nixon, and looks like Nixon. They said, did you study Richard Nixon so you could play him correctly? And he said, no, I studied the character that Peter Morgan wrote so I could play it the way Peter Morgan wanted it played. And it comes into focus in one most intriguing thing in the movie, Nixon confesses to being a part of the cover-up. but he never did in his in his interview with uh, with uh, David Frost. he doesn't say that. he says, look, the question was intent and I had no intent to break the law. So I, I don't think it's a fair. I've got an essay on my website uh, about the movie but i don't think it's a fair portrayal portrayal of, of richard nixon
4: righty, next we have a question uh, regarding oh uh, well well uh uh i have come to have an extremely negative view of richard nixon unrelated to all the issues we've been talking about so uh, based on my uh, own experiences and uh Subsequent information. So
1: Jeff and I are somewhat in disagreement about this. But we're also old and dear friends, and we discuss this sort of thing almost all the time. Right. Next question.
5: Sure. We have a question here regarding the Lacovara July 23rd, 1974 memo, in which he concedes that the law of the case principle may not bar a future appeal raising the ex parte matters. Does anyone see an avenue today by which a motion for dismissing any and all of the Sirica court's Watergate convictions can be pursued?
1: Well, well uh, I think what Lacovara means in the memo is they didn't they didn't issue an opinion. They just denied the writ, so this could be raised again. The recusal issue could be raised again on appeal after the cover-up trial. That's the illusion. Then the question is, could you challenge this stuff today? Um, These people may have different opinions. One option is a writ of quorum nobis, where one of his descendants could come into court and say unfair, the wrongdoing continues over. Uh, that would be expensive. That would be difficult. You'd file it in the DC District Court. There may be another alternative, uh, kind of on the lines along the lines that Larry uh Silberman alluded to. Someone could bring to the attention of the Department of Justice this wrongdoing and, and say you can't stand silent. Didn't you try
4: to do that in the Justice Department? <laughs> Go ahead, Jeff. Go ahead. All right.
1: Thank you. Yes, Uh, uh, we were going to skip this part. But uh, last October, I learned there was a specific unit within the Department of Justice called the Office of Professional Responsibility, whose sole mission is to pursue allegations of attorney misconduct by Department of Justice attorneys. The day I learned of the existence of this unit, which was founded under the Ford administration, I filed a complaint of attorney misconduct, and over the course of the following year, I followed up with 10 separate letters, raising different points, uh, which are all on my website. Late last month, not having heard anything back from them, I received a letter, and the letter said, my characterization, but it's up on my website. We don't deign to look into this. It's too long ago. Those people aren't with the department anymore, and we aren't sure the department is responsible for their activities. Now, in preparation for this, I haven't responded to their response. It's right here on my desk. Uh, I wanted to wait till after this form. But Judge Silverman brought up an interesting point in the guidelines. It says DOJ can get involved in allegations of gross improprieties. So I don't see how the Department of Justice can claim they're not responsible for actions by the Office of the Special Prosecutor.
2: If we can move for just a second, Jeff, I'd like to ask uh, the professor, writ of quorum nobis is I, I never I never filed one as a lawyer and I've never had one filed before Hey, uh, the most famous one I can think of is Alger Hissa's petition for a writ of quorum nobis, which was denied, and that denial was upheld. Uh, but a uh, p- petition for a writ of quorum nobis is to cure a manifest and great injustice, is it not?
3: It is. It's based on facts that were not in the record, which cast doubt on the conviction. The case I mentioned, you may remember the uh, Koromatsu case? The
2: Koromatsu case, yes.
1: Sure.
3: In the 40s, where the court upheld the internment of the Japanese. Well, Fred Koromatsu's relatives filed a writ of quorum nobis in the district court in San Francisco, the Northern District of California, was assigned to Marilyn Hall Patel. And she discovered that the United States had lied to the Supreme Court in the Koromatsu case, that they had withheld evidence that suggested the Japanese were not a threat. distorted the record and she granted the writ of quorum nobis the united states tried to have the the appeal dismiss to have uh an appeal um but it didn't go anywhere and so his conviction was reversed was reversed i can't remember i think it was the 90s so it would be almost 50 years after his conviction
1: i i was told by one of the panel members that my thirst for unethical findings against the prosecution force is uh, is is not worthwhile, is beneath me. And my response was, I don't care about disciplining these lawyers. I think those convictions are invalid. And I think the Department of Justice someday will come into court, as it did with Ted Stevens, and say, we can't support these verdicts. Material well, has come to our it's, attention.
2: It's, I, I, uh, I don't know of a case uh, where the Department of Justice, oh, I don't know, half a century after the fact, comes in and says, we want this conviction vacated. But if a member of a family of a Watergate defendant were to file a petition for a writ of quorum nobis, uh, uh, it would be interesting in light of the response Jeff got, which is these were not our employees. Uh, that, that's how I read it when you sent it to me. These these guys didn't work for us. And uh, uh, we, we have other things to do than dip into this 40-year-old, 50-year-old um, uh, a, a, a allegation of 50-year-old impropriety. But if if uh, a coronavus writ were filed by uh, John Doe's son saying, I want my father's name cleared, And he did that in the D.C. District Court. Uh, Steve Salzberg, what do you think the DOJ, and he he gives, the reasons he gives are these ex parte communications with Sirica, because that's really all we have in writing. What do you think? And the the exculpatory evidence that uh, Jeff has found about the evolution of the key witnesses Uh, version of events, and the decision, the way decisions to charge were made, do you think a half a century later that rises to a level of granting a a, a root of quorum nobis, professor?
3: Not on the third point, the the charging decisions, but I do think the first two. The the, the ex parte contacts, not just one, the many ex parte contacts the arrangement to have Sirica position so he could make himself the judge and sign all the guilty pleas and all the cases to him and John Dean's. Um, the the changing testimony of John Dean, yeah, I think there's a pretty good chance a writ could be granted.
1: Now I I add, wasn't persuasive, that these guys taking their records with them amounted to a cover-up and prevented timely discovery.
2: Well, the the, the way Brady works is anything the prosecutor has in his or her possession uh, that is uh, exculpatory, is Brady material, has to be disclosed. I don't know that it would have been disclosed any more quickly if it went to the National Archives right away. And the fact that they gave it to the National Archives, look, we haven't discussed why these lawyers, all of them very accomplished people, would have recorded this kind of improper behavior and then given it over to the National Archives. That's, well, they, that's they,
4: what amaz- They gave
1: it over because they died.
4: <laughs> it, I mean, that's what amazes me about this. Uh, and I, I have the impression that if they recorded what they did record, I wonder if they didn't record other material that's even worse.
2: It, it, it kind of jumps out at you, doesn't it, Judge?
1: Yes. The, the big discovery was Leon Jaworski's confidential file. That's where most of the dynamite memos come from. And I think what he did, uh, he parachuted into the middle of a battlefield, and nobody trusted him, not, not Archie's staff, nor certainly the White House. And the judge kept calling him over. Uh, and what he decided to do, I think, is make concurrent notes. So he could explain. Because some of those memos say, you invited me over. That's why we were there. Uh, Then I think that evolved into his decision to write a book. And he was just like Nixon doing with the tapes. He was keeping concurrent notes for him. I mean, on company time, on company stationery with the company secretary. So he could write his book. And he took the stuff with him. Some people do this. They take documents improperly from the yeah. <laughs> Washington D.C. so they can refer to them in the future. Uh, uh, and then uh, there's one other possibility. It's possibly wanted it to come out, but I don't think so. But Jeff, Jeff, those he's, days, Jeff, he's he's he is
2: implicating himself in improper conduct. If you're saying he wanted to get back at these people. Who never really accepted him and who strong armed him. I understand, but uh um uh he's describing his own misconduct. I think the, yep. the code that has just been put up is our cue that our this this is over. Am I correct, Jack? <laughs> we could probably fit in another
1: one or two questions, but yeah, real quick. we gotta, uh, make, sure we, go. we gotta we make sure we we gotta make sure we hit the get get third it. hour. Do you want us this
5: to read three. this, Jack? Yeah, I I can go ahead. Just so it's nice. I believe in the chat, we're also going to post the sign-out sheet now for those of you seeking CLE. Please use that to sign out. We'll leave that. We'll repost that a few times for your benefit.
1: Okay. okay. I
5: do think we can address another question or two here, if that's all right with you, Jeff, and other panelists.
1: Sure. No, that's fine. Go ahead.
5: Great. Yeah, we have an interesting one here about how this sort of played out at the time. At the time when the presentment was made in open court, did anyone in the press or other observers pick up that something odd or suspicious was going on?
1: Uh, Give me the second half of that question. Anybody in the press?
5: Or other observers pick up that something out of the ordinary was going on?
1: Well, no. Uh, uh, Back then, uh, there was a uniform monolithic press. Uh, There were three networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, two national newspapers, uh, The Times and The Post, and two weekly magazines, which were hugely influential, Time and Newsweek and they were uniformly disdainful of President Nixon. So you had a hounding of him uh, uh, without letter. I mean, almost from the time he got out uh, his but Nixon was not liked by the uh, mainstream press. Uh, and, and it was almost to the point of grave dancing Uh, We we couldn't get our story out. Now, last June was the 50th anniversary of the break-in, which is more news. And in some discussion groups, it was observed that if talk radio, Fox News, Newsmax uh, 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 existed, and, and, and podcasts... Back with Nixon, he would never have been driven from office, that you would get, and this was not said happily, this was not said regretfully, this was said because the people who said it don't like what's going on today, they don't like the object of their fury to be defended by anybody. But nobody, with the exception of Chuck Colson, was going to venture out. We couldn't get lawyers. I mean, th- th- that's in the news today. What well, I remember thinking at the time, a president is going to be driven from office because he can't find a lawyer willing to defend him. Now, then Jim oh, wait, St. Clair no, wait, showed up. Wait a minute. He had Jim
4: St. Clair.
1: No, no, no. This is before St. Clair was there. Remember, we went through J.J. Sullivan and Chappie Rose and uh, the guy who came up from Miami Beach, Sam Powers. Uh, Remember uh Maury Lieben Maury was managing partner of Sidley Austin, fine guy. And he was Haig's best friend. And he'd come in all the time trying to suggest another lawyer, Dick Sprague from Philadelphia, somebody else. And they couldn't make a deal. And then they got Jim St. Clair. Now, Jim St. Clair was superb, but he had no staff, Larry. We were we were faced off against 30 lawyers from the Urban Committee. 60 lawyers from the special prosecutor, 45 lawyers from the impeachment committee, and we had, as you're very familiar, some good lawyers. But it was a pickup game; it was a ragtag bunch, bunch of people. We had no economies really? being established. We I weren't used to litigating.
2: Jeff, with all due respect, I think we've answered the question. Jack, do you <laughs> want to ask? Do you want to pose another you, question Paul. to us? You got another question. It's, it's a good
5: one to close out on. It's a little bit forward-looking.
2: Jeff, why don't you uh, forward-look for us?
1: <laughs> oh, did you?
2: were you going to read a question?
5: Yeah, based on these lessons learned. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought, I thought you were telling us to, to
2: close up. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
5: Sure, sure. We can use this as sort of a, a closing statement. How can we improve transparency and integrity in prosecutions, particularly of high-ranking executive officials and other top-ranking political and appointees?
1: Well, uh, if you say, what, what what really are the lessons learned? Uh, one, independent prosecutors don't work. I think we might get universal agreement to that. Two, your only hope for the future is a free and vibrant press. I don't like the press. I, I don't like articles that, that I disagree with. But that's what keeps people honest. And, and, and maybe others have other ideas that, that certainly... Uh, 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 Attorney General Jackson's admonition to the U.S. attorneys is the best statement of what's expected. But when you parse it, there's no easy answer. We have to have good people making correct decisions. There's
2: a a move afoot now to amend the rules. I was on the Civil Procedural Rules Committee, and there, there there were all kinds of proposals to amend the rules when at least some have suggested the root problem is, district court judges, we won't do our jobs. We won't manage the civil cases before us. We won't handle discovery. And uh, if you don't have a judge who's willing to do his or her job, no rule change is going to make a difference. And I think that's true in the criminal sphere as well. If you have prosecutors who don't honor their oath of office, uh, uh even a vibrant press won't necessarily be able to sniff anything out and what we see here what jeff has has uncovered here can happen and it's 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 it 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 it, it violates any notion of due process
4: may i respond uh and in a way echo what jeff said as i look back on it and think how i was influenced myself as uh, events transpired. The uniform press hostility to Nixon, indeed to any Republican, but particularly to Nixon, based on his race against Helen Gahagan Douglas in California and his chairmanship of the House Un-American Activities Committee meant that the hostility of elites was absolutely uniformly against him. And that was true of all the press and media. And I think that's the explanation for the behavior of everybody involved. No matter what you did, as long as you were after Nixon, you were going to be protected.
1: One intriguing thing that I think about a lot uh, Larry and I are both graduates of Harvard Law School. I happened to go to college at Whittier, uh, where Nixon went. Nixon was awarded a Harvard scholarship to go to Harvard College by the Republicans of Orange County. And he couldn't afford to go. This was the Depression. He couldn't afford to go. He, he was needed in his family's business because he drove downtown at 4 a.m. every morning to buy fruit to bring back to the store. So throughout his whole life, as he's been just pilloried by the Ivy League elites, he knows, but for his poverty, he might have been there, too. And I just find that poignant.
2: Well, I just Um, want to point out that uh, Professor Salzberg and I both went to the University of Pennsylvania Law School. I simply want to point that
1: out. I've got an excellent (laughs)
3: and <laughs> education. Can I address that? Actually, the <laughs> funny,
4: the funny thing, if you look at the tapes uh, that are now published concerning Nixon's private discussions with Harle- Ehrlichman and Haldeman, there were two categories of people that he distrusted and disliked intensely. One were Harvard graduates and the second were Jews. And the amusing thing is his administration was rife with both. It well, really
1: as is.
2: as is this panel, as is this panel. Well, <laughs> let, let
1: me take a second on that because Larry and I go round and round. I think we're
2: on. way way out of time, Jeff. I mean, way
1: well, out I mean, of we've time. We've got to use we we got to use up the uh, the late Jeff, start. It's, it's twenty after three. Well, there was a ten minute break, and then there was a late start, so we're right on the board. Okay, whatever Jack says. Jack's got the Jack Jack's got the watch. What do we have to go to, Jack? One more chance for closing statements and then we'll wrap up. All here. right. Let me I, I insist. Uh uh, if I can remember my point. Larry says, look, uh uh, he hates Harvard people. Boy, did he. And and he, he says disparaging things about the Jews. The interesting thing about Nixon's cabinet, and I I give speeches at Harvard. I'm a graduate of the law school there wasn't a single harvard graduate in his cabinet but dozens and dozens of them in the sub cabinet now they tended to be b school and law school graduates not the college uh, but the, the place i mean harvard's a great university and they pick great people and they they assume leadership roles the argument over the jewish situation is intriguing because usually not always, but usually he's expressing frustration that he's done so much for them and for Israel and they vote a pure Democrat line. And, and, and so some of them, he's he's talking about them as a voting block. But I add, he had dozens of Jews in his administration that he appointed. Arthur Burns and Henry Kissinger and, and uh, Herb uh, Stein I don't not, think
2: I don't think they get CLE credit for this kind of observation. <laughs> uh,
4: Fair
1: enough. Fair enough. Oh, Darn
5: up. Uh, can not thank you enough, Jeff, for taking the time in our outstanding panel today? And I have a few final CLE notes for our, our attendees. Can keep track of everything the Federal Society is up to at FedSoc.org or on social media at FedSoc. With that, we are adjourned. Thank you.
0: And I want to say a simple thank you. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast uh, documentary series that actually went back uh, to uh, and looked at the most divisive period of time in the history of our country save the Civil War. Going back to our show on the assassination of South Vietnamese President Ngo Dinh Diem and former President John F. Kennedy in November of 1963. And we went all the way through the the Civil Rights Movement, the Vietnam War under President Lyndon Johnson's leadership, the Vietnam War through its conclusion uh, uh, under Richard Nixon, and even in our uh, epilogue through to the fall of Saigon with Gerald Ford, and, of course, a thorough examination of Watergate uh, and, and, of course, the entire Nixon presidency. Uh, we're very proud of that, and, uh, and, and I'm proud of how well this show is done, and thank you for tuning in. Uh, and and with that, I think we we hopefully made a case uh, that the World War II generation brought an enormous capacity for leadership, and we've looked at what they did right and what they did wrong in this that most tumultuous period of time uh, in during their decades of leadership. And I hope you'll tune in in 2023 as we move on to the triumphant moment uh, of their leadership the World War II generation's leadership under Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush, as we look at the leadership lessons, really of both of them, but focusing on on the leadership lessons of George H.W. Bush, the beginnings of a dynasty and the fall of communism. I hope you will tune in a chance to look at the high moment, the high point of the World War II generation. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in and good night. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.